This is part two of our discussion with Dr. Jared Porter, the motor learning professor at the University of Tennessee on planning practice. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. What about the competition phase of practice? Is it as simple as just playing the game exactly how you'd play it uh, with scoring and everything? Or are there things coaches can do to design practice to, I guess, prepare their players more for those matches? So, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I, again, I, I'm going to emphasize the point of that reverse engineering of, of trying to understand what's the competition environment going to look like and doing things in practice that are preparing for that as best you can. And one of the beautiful things about sport is that a lot of it is unpredictable. Uh, so you don't know. And I think that's where in practice you want to spend time practicing what I always refer to as kind of chaos scenarios when these completely unexpected things happen. And I'm a big believer in the idea of getting athletes and teams out of routines, you know, make practice uncomfortable because we all know that competition is going to certainly deliver surprises. You know, there's going to be things that happen that you don't expect and, and you want to practice that, you know, all the way from, you know, kind of athletes getting injured and you lose somebody and what do you do? How do you respond to that? Um, How do you come from behind in certain situations? So I think you want to spend time in practice rehearsing as many of those types of things that you can. And again, I think that's building towards real competition situations is that's, that's going to happen. And I think sometimes in, in sport, um, you know, there, there's an attempt to kind of do some, what I hear referred to as like feel good reps and, and doing things to ensure success. And I, to me, that's such a waste because there's no guarantee in competition. There's, there's going to be feel good reps and or that things are going to go exactly as you plan. Sometimes they do, and, and that's a wonderful result, but many times they don't. And so I think, you know, where, where maybe some coaches go wrong is not practicing some of those situations. So I think the best time to do all that is in the competition phase of practice, you know, is, is really kind of drive those things home. And that's true not only for the athletes, but also the coaches. And so, you know, I, again, speaking from some failures of my own, you know, coaching athletes when something goes wrong, you stop and you talk about it. Like you can't do that in a competition, right? You can't call, there's not infinite timeouts. There's not infinite things you can do. And so when you get to that competition phase of practice, treat it like a game. And so that, that's true for coaches. I think you need to practice the idea of coaching from a distance. You know, how do you talk people through, uh, you know, game? And so I think the, the, the competition phase of practice is the optimal time to do that, kind of really drive those things home for everybody involved. Right. No, I, I, I agree 100%. And it's um, really important for coaches to hear. Sometimes I'll hear on match day or on game day, then we want to give them some feel-good reps in that warm-up so they can feel good when the game comes, so they can have, you know, confidence. I'm wondering where you stand in that sort of scenario, you know, say – the 10, 20, 30 minutes before the actual competition starts? If anybody can show me compelling scientific evidence that that actually is effective, I would love to see it. Love it. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of these things that sounds good, but 
you know, unicorns sound nice, doesn't make <laughs> So, uh, I mean, I, I, I sound really cynical here, but, you know, I, I hear this a lot and I always push back and say, yeah, but show me the evidence. You know, I, I'm a scientist. I, I believe people should be making evidence-based decisions. I'm skeptical inherently of all this good stuff um, because of the nature of my work. But, um, you know, I just, I, I don't like routines because I've seen so many athletes crumble when the routine falls apart. And, and a lot of times that happens like in pregame, if they're going through and all of a sudden their shoelace breaks and all you know, they have to wear a different pair of shoes. I didn't get to finish my feel good reps. Oh my God. And then they're just, you know, out of sorts for the entire match. And so like, I let's practice some chaos. You know, I would sometimes in warmups, I would make athletes switch shoes with each other. Just felt uncomfortable. So they get used to it. like, it's going to happen. You know, weird things are going to happen in competition. So let's get ready for it. Let, let's, let's own it. And, and uh, so again, you know, I, I, uh, I would love to see some evidence. So if anybody can share with me, please, please do, because I would love to see that, that positive effect because I've looked for it and I just, I haven't seen it. So you've already mentioned some of the goofier drills you might've done in your early days of coaching. What are some common coaching mistakes that you see coaches make uh, in practice design? Um, I, I think you know, probably one of the biggest ones is the idea of just doing things in practice that force the athlete to do things that they would never do in a competition. You know, so practice becomes, the practice environment becomes so far removed. And, you know, there, there might be a place for that in the off season, but I just, I think when, you, when you're in the season, when you're in, in the thick of it, um, I think that's a big mistake that I routinely see being made. And the other, you know, common thing I think is just not growing as a, as a coach, you know, is, is just, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, the idea of just recycling. I think a lot of coaches coach the way they were coached, especially if they were part of a successful program and, you know, game games change, they evolve, you know, and if you just keep doing the same thing, you become pretty predictable. And I've, I've only encountered very few coaches in my life that can consistently do the same things and have success. Um, and those that can are just, they're masters of execution. You know, they just, they're very predictable. They just beat you because they're, they're better. Um, but that's rare. You know, I, I think coaches need to evolve, stay educated and, and, and just keep changing what you're doing to be a little unpredictable. And, and, uh, and, and that a lot of times is the simple byproduct of as your athletes are changing, that changes your coaching philosophy you know, because you have a different cohort of folks you're working with. But um, I think from a practice design perspective, though, those are the couple big things, I think, is just not changing, just coaching the way you were coached, and then just doing things that are in practice that are just too far removed from the competition setting and not taking advantage of the limited amount of practice time that you have. Nice. And we just had one more on practice design, just to think of it more of a, you know, if you're looking at a season as a coach, say I have my off-season and in-season or, you know, the week before performance, you know, how, how does practice design change in these different situations? So I think the off season, you know, is, is a nice time to kind of rebuild or, or build, put in new things, um, maybe try out players in different positions. You know, and I, you know, I, I have to be fully honest. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of volleyball that well. Uh, so I, 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 I'm going to apologize for not getting some of the nomenclature correct and, and just can, some 
philosophy of this, but I think it's the off season is a great time to experiment, you know, and, and, and put in new things for offense, defense, again, just, just challenge people, to, your athletes to grow. And that means many times putting them in really uncomfortable positions, uh, you know, mentally many times, and that could be just trying out different roles. Um, it's a great time to really foster uh, autonomy, you know, and, and give the athletes a lot of ownership of what they're doing really fold them in to a lot of the decision-making. Um, and if nothing else, that can be superficial. You know, let them make decisions about things that aren't really relevant to what's happening, but it gives them the perception that they they are really involved and engaged. And once you get into the season, you know, things are happening quick. You know, I've been around coaching enough to know that um, in the season, you don't have a lot of those autonomy freedoms. You know, you've got to make quick decisions. You've got to act. There's certain things you have to do in practice. It's much more structured. Where I think in the offseason, you can get rid of some of that. And, and I think in the offseason, you can make practice be a bit more fun, a bit more relaxed, a bit more casual. When you get into the thick of it in the season, then I think practice needs to become much more deliberate. You know, it's not designed to be fun. It's not designed, you know, to, in my mind, make people feel good. It's, it's You're designed to accomplish goals, reach objectives, and be very focused and push people just beyond their capabilities, you know, and, and really chase it and go after it. So in my mind, those are the kind of the big structural differences in the design and practice from the in-season to the off-season. It's interesting thinking about um, like a lot of lower levels, like high school and club don't have the luxury of an off-season because you're kind of sure. in it right away. You're kind of at that level forced to be <laughs> more strict with being game-like and jumping right into uh, not wasting your time and effective practices. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, As, you know, pro athletes have kind of that luxury, or even collegiate athletes of, of having being able to kind of focus on your craft year-round. But when you get down to some of those lower levels, it's now you got a couple of weeks to kind of get ready, and season starts, then it's over, and then you're doing other stuff. Yeah. All right, we have some random questions for you. Um, okay. So we know you've done a lot of research on feedback. What are some keys to effective feedback? Um, the big one's not give too much. You know, always default to giving less. And if you're ever on the fence, should I give feedback? The answer is no. Uh, you know, just kind of I, when it comes to feedback, I'm a believer in the idea of just stay out of their way. You know, I humans have been practicing motor skills since the dawn of humans. Um, the science of skill acquisition and motor learning, you know, is less than 100 years old. And, and so I think sometimes there's this, this need, you know, or this feeling of like applying lots of feedback, lots of instruction, you know, just douse the person and all this stuff. Well, we forget that people have gotten pretty good at things without any help from a coach, like without any feedback. And so I think many times the best thing to do is just kind of get out of the way. And one of the easiest ways to get out of the way is deliver less feedback. And so, you know, the common mistakes that are made is giving too much feedback, you know, uh, giving too much detail in the feedback, giving feedback that induces an internal focus of attention, you know, giving feedback that's overly critical or negative, you know, giving feedback, you know, uh, giving too much of it, which ties into like the frequency issue. And so just my, my default is always less is always better. So with the feedback, just, you know, less, that's, that's the big thing. If you can give less feedback, you've, you've accomplished a lot as a coach. (laughs) 
And if it is one of those uh, rare times in practice where you do step in and, you know, give your sentence worth, uh, what would that feedback sound like? Is it like just observational? Is it something that you've seen them do habitually through practice? Uh, I guess, what would it sound like? Um, I guess you'd also make it brief. Yeah, I always say uh, speak in, in with strong verbs and short sentences. Mm-hmm. So just come in and give more of a cue, you know, just like give give these short phrases that prompt a behavior. I think maybe the only exception to that is if the athlete is at, at risk of hurting themselves or somebody else. Then I think there then then there's an opportunity to really have a conversation about kind of what you observed, what's wrong about it, and how it should change. But a strategy that I always like to do with feedback is instead of actually really giving feedback, give more instruction. So maybe you observe an athlete doing something incorrectly or making some sort of glaring error. So instead of coming in and saying, okay, you did X, Y, and Z wrong, a better strategy I find is to come in and say, okay, hey, the next rep, try it this way. So you're not identifying the error. You're actually giving them instruction to say, okay, in the future, let's try it this way. And through that method, you're actually fixing the error without ever bringing their attention to the error. And so, you know, a lot of coaches that say, well, you got to tell them what they're doing wrong so they can figure out what to do wrong. And I, the data just don't support that. There's all sorts of data that show that you can very easily correct behavior through effective instruction without ever giving feedback. So you can guide them towards where you want them to go without ever identifying what they're doing wrong. So I think those strong verbs, short sentences, cues, and, and really the feedback and or instruction you're giving should be about future behaviors that you want them to achieve rather than past behaviors they didn't achieve. Um, another method I, that I find pretty effective is instead of the coach coming in and giving feedback, ask the athlete to self-evaluate. So ask them, what do you think was right about that? What do you think was wrong about that? It's also a nice way to inject some of that autonomy you know, where you're folding them in and really get them to think about solving the problem themselves. And again, that's another one of these things that prepares them for competition. When they get to the competition, they're going to have to solve the problem by themselves. You can't always be there whispering in their ear what they should be doing or where they should be looking. So I think, you know, as, as a method, when you do come in to give feedback or provide verbal information, I think those are some pretty effective methods to do as little damage as possible. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So you've also studied expert performers. Uh, I guess, super easy question. How do expert performers achieve excellence? Uh, Boy, I'm going to blow some minds here. Uh, they work really hard for a long time. <laughs> um, and I, but I, you know, I, I joke, but that's kind of the, the, the truth. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, the, the poor souls that have ever had a class with me or have worked in my lab, have heard me say a million times that, you know, humans are, are born as a blank slate. And when we're born, we don't have any, any motor skills pre-programmed. Uh, we have to learn everything. And so for those, those few uh, rare folks that actually achieve, you know, expert status or world-class status, right? What you see is that, yeah, many of them have a genetic disposition. So maybe they're, they're the right height, the right weight, they have the right kind of muscle mass. None of that has to really do with skill acquisition, right? Skill acquisition happens in the six inches between your ears. And so all skills must be acquired. They have to be practiced. And, and those, those rare folks that really achieve exceptional performance are those that have spent years 
um, you know, following deliberate practice principles. You know, that is, they're, they're working hard. Practice is really goal-driven. It's not designed to be inherently fun or enjoyable. It's designed to achieve objectives. Uh, they've, they've been exposed to quality coaching. Uh, they've, they've, they've been in an environment that's nurturing and supportive, you know, in a variety of ways. So, you know, when it comes to expertise, and, and this is true across any discipline, if you're looking at uh, world-class volleyball players or world-class chess players or world-class surgeons or world-class whatever, um, there's that common thread across all the disciplines. They've spent years of practicing. They've had great instruction. Um, they've been nurtured and, and, and that skill development has really been fostered. It didn't happen by accident. And so uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to study expertise and, and, and kind of just routinely see that happen. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. So I think those are the big, the big common threads. So that's how they get there. Then how does someone sustain it? How do you stay excellent? So you keep doing all those same things. And I, I think, you know, the, the experts that maintain expertise are the ones I think that continually evolve. They continue to work hard. They, they continue to really push themselves, push the boundaries. Um, they continue to be fostered and, and mentored, uh, but they keep striving. Always, there's always new goals, new objectives. They're, they're always hungry, you know, to, to do something new. They don't get, you know, stagnant in, 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 their, in their career path. So I think the ones that are able to maintain expertise for, for years are the ones that are always doing that. And, and that's tough to do without getting burned out or for athletes, you know, not getting injured and, you know, and staying mentally and physically healthy. Boy, that's really tough to do. And it's one of the reasons why when you see it happen, it's almost like capturing lightning in a bottle because it's really a rare thing to see. It's one thing to reach great success. It's a whole other beast to maintain it. And then um, unfortunately, you see for a lot of those folks that whenever their career does come to an end, boy, they have, a, they have a very hard time transitioning out of it, you know, because they've spent many times their whole life building towards this one thing. And when it ends, uh, boy, the, the data draw a very gloomy picture many times. And we see that across, you know, you pick any profession. So it's not, that's not unique to sport. You know, you see that in the military, within, within medicine, within, within any sort of career path. You know, for some folks, they live in a career where they can retire when they're 60 or 70 or whatever it is, and then kind of live out and play golf and do that kind of stuff. But uh, in sport, a lot of times the careers are pretty short. And so, you know, athletes, you know, if they make it to their thirties and they're still competing at a high level, I mean, the, the clock is ticking and they're still really young. And so for a lot of the experts that I've had the pleasure of working with, we, we spend time talking about the transition out. And I think that's something that gets overlooked many times is, there's so much focus on building them up to get them really skilled. And then once their career ends, they're almost tossed to the side. They're forgotten about. And for those few folks that can't go into coaching or don't want to be a sports announcer or some sort of commentator and still live in the sport, they're, they're in trouble a lot of times. And so I always encourage you, I'll, I'll encourage all the coaches that are out there listening to this to not forget about that. You know, work with your work with your 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 folks to really help them think about the end. You know, we don't want to think about it, but it's important to have the conversation. So it's hard to maintain it. But I think that's how you do it. But we don't want to forget that it is going to come to an end. And then, then what do we do? We'll have to have you on for a little 
conversation about that uh, to help me personally. But um, we're, okay. we're going to end with some listener questions. Um, listener Casey Kreider asks, what's the role of honesty and coach feedback during learning? For example, is it acceptable, even beneficial to exaggerate or even misrepresent an athlete's performance to enhance expectancies? How important is being realistic, authentic as a coach? Yeah. Um, I, I hope that the person who submitted that question recognizes and appreciates how complicated that question is. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, this, you know, this is another one of these areas of skill acquisition research in the last decade or so. When I, when I say these areas, I mean looking at kind of enhanced expectations or expectancy and performance that's become really popular. And, and, and I think one way to answer the question is when you look at the research, the research are pretty conclusive that um, lying to learners, telling them they're better than they actually are or that they're better than their peers or they're better than some sort of standard results in improved performance. That has been replicated many times in the lab. When you get to real life though, that's a little tricky because again, we're thinking about competition, right? That's the test in, in sport. And so if you're telling your team like, boy, you're, you're better than everybody out there. You're, you're better than your opponents. You're better than this other nation. And then you meet in the Olympics and you get destroyed. <laughs> now the coach is revealed as a fraud. And, and you've lost a lot of credibility with your team. I have yet to see compelling evidence where that's been tested in real life. You know, so, I mean, there, there are isolated studies in controlled settings with patient populations, with novices, with skilled performers that if you just tell them they're doing well, that they're mastering the task, that does facilitate learning at a pretty positive clip. I'm all for that. Theoretically, sure. But I think honesty is always the best policy, you know, and as a coach, you know, I, you know, I, I, could, I could talk for hours about this effect. You know, I've had the experience where you feel really good going into a competition. You, you think you got a shot. And then, you know, if I come from the football universe, um, the opening kickoff happens. And then a couple minutes in the game, you know, you're in trouble, right? You know, this is not going to go well, that you felt really good going into it. And then you realize pretty early on, like, uh Oh, we didn't prepare properly. And so I think that's where sometimes being misleading can be dangerous for both the coach and a team. So um, I think the short answer uh, is, is I think be honest because again, you've got to really prepare people for competition, you know, and uh, you know, I think in real life, you know, real life is messy. And I, I just, I think being honest with folks is valuable. And I think if nothing else, it builds credibility. I think your team appreciates when you tell them, like, we're not ready, you know, or we're not as good, you know, not, not to say you want to do it all the time, but I think there's just a reality that, that will set in during gameplay. And if uh, you want to talk about changing somebody's confidence, get them feeling really good. And then when they start getting beat, uh, then they're, they're in real trouble. It's hard to come back from that. I think there was a second part to that question. I, I forget. Yeah, I think he, I think he tied it in just how important okay. was it to be. Yeah, it makes sense that, um, especially if you're working with an athlete over a career or four years at a college, that <laughs> you're going to lose that credibility. Versus, I know some of the tests or the research I saw was like maybe like a one day thing where you're kind of you know pumping them up for one test kind of thing. 
but it seems like it, they're, they're going to be on to you if you keep trying to do it over a, a course of a season or a prolonged term. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, um, again, another expression that I, I kind of say a lot of times is I don't care how people feel. I care how they perform. And so I'm as a skill acquisition person, I'm, I'm personally not that motivated just to do things to make people feel good about an upcoming performance, even though the data tell me that doing that could have some real positive short-term effects. Cause I just know in the real world, like they're going to find out, you know, when they, when they get to that, competition. So yeah, I think being honest is, is really important. And, and I think this is, you know, when I think about my military work, um, that's so true. We talk about mission planning and like, you got to know what you're getting into. And it's really important from an operator's perspective to know like what's coming. Are we ready? Where are we weak? Where are we strong? And I think coaches do their teams a lot of service when they have that conversation. All right, we've got another uh, listener, Andy Bass, who I think you know. Uh, I do know Andy, yeah. <laughs> he's the man. Uh, he yeah. asks, the two dominant theories in motor learning are dynam dynamical systems, the constraints-led approach, and schema theory, which is more like information processing. How do you balance these theories in your research and consulting work? Is it possible to have a healthy balance of both when we consider sport as a continuum? Obviously, we have some easy listener questions for you here. Yeah, <laughs> we'll leave it to Andy to, uh, to, 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 to come at me with this one. Um, Andy's great. I, I know that, that you guys know Andy, and Andy's one of the nicest people I think I've ever met. He's great. I got a lot of respect for, for Andy and what he's doing professionally. Um, but, you know, I think that the answer to the question is sure. You know, in my mind, I think I'm one of maybe the rare folks that, that I, I think schema theory or information processing in that framework and what I usually call the dynamical systems approach um, or constraints-led approach or Gibsonian approach. They're kind of, to me, all the same. They're both equally valuable. I, I think that there's, in the scientific community, there's certainly space for both of these theories to exist. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that someday in the not so far future, somebody smart is gonna come along and join these things into a unified theory. We're not there yet, but you know, I, I, I always, you know, when we have our lab meetings and I, when I talk to my students about these things, I, I always propose the idea that, you know, really both theories are kind of saying the same thing, just in a, in a different, through a different lens and, you know, different voice, you know, so they both at the end of the day support the same types of results, you know, so they both promote the idea of variability. They both promote the idea of kind of looking at how the person is interacting with the environment and vice versa. How's the environment affecting performance? Um, you know, the nuts and bolts are a little different, but I think both theories are accurate. They're correct. Um, you know, we, we could talk for hours just about this question, which we're obviously not going to do, but I, I certainly think that whatever position you're taking and, and a lot of folks are die hard in one camp or the other, like everything in the world right now, and if you love dynamical systems theory, you think schema theory is the worst thing that ever existed. If you love schema theory, you think dynamical systems is a bunch of nonsense. I, I'm, I'm in the middle. I think they, they, each of them has a time and a place to explain data really well. And then sometimes they both fail. You know, sometimes where schema theory provides a really great explanation, Dynamical systems doesn't, and the reverse is true. There's times where dynamical systems provides a great explanation for an observed result, and schema theory doesn't. 
Um, they're both young ideas. They're both you know, 40, 45 years old in scientific terms. That's, that's an infancy. That's nothing. And so uh, they're, they're, you know, theories are living things. They're always evolving. So I think there's absolutely a place for both. And I think it's, it's, it's good practice to be well-versed in both theories. You know, so to understand kind of how the how to interpret data and results that you're observing. So maybe this, I don't know, this question might not make sense, but if you're if you're taking over the UT football team this year, and uh, you know obviously uh, you know winning is a a big deal, and, and you have understanding of both these theories, is there one that you're going to lean on more as a as a coach, or, or yeah, is it just player dependent, day dependent? Yeah, I think it's data dependent. You know, I um, so I don't. There's not one that I lean on either because I think both have uh, their strengths and they both have their weaknesses. I always right, talk about these theories. Theories. That one of the metaphors that I always like to use is like a comparison between a PC and a Mac. Um, you know, if you know how to use both of them, you're set. But if you only know how to use a Mac and all of a sudden you have to use a PC, you're in trouble, or vice versa. And so there's some things that a Mac does really, really well that a PC doesn't, and then they're vice versa. So I, as a coach, you know, from a theoretical perspective, um, I would hope that I wouldn't heavily lean on either theory as a default. I like having both of them in my pocket. And so as I see an observation, as I'm trying to analyze data, whatever that might be, I can go back to, to, to one or either or both theories to try to understand what's happening. You know, and from a practical perspective, I don't know that it really matters. You know, I think as long as the, the coach is making good evidence-based decisions, then that's a win. And, and if they don't know the deep theoretical explanation, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, as, as a researcher, I think you need to know that. But I think that's the, the researcher kind of becomes the translator to where you take the research and the findings and then you present that in a way to the practitioner that's digestible and usable. And it, sometimes I think we get a little too hung up on the theoretical explanation where for, for a coach, like who, who cares? You know, if you know how to apply the constraints less approach to get your athletes to do what you need them to do, wonderful. If you can accomplish that same goal by using information processing, great. If you can use both, good for you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not sure that, it, you know, that it really matters from a practical perspective, but I think there's space for both. And I, I don't lean on one more than the other. Cool. Well, th thanks for breaking it down with us. Sure. Uh, we just have one more question from, it's from Andy Bass. And he says, in your opinion, what concept in motor learning is most often misunderstood by coaches? And why do you think that is? Oh boy. <laughs> um, one concept that's most misunderstood I, I think, man, I, we could have a whole series of podcasts. On it that. sounds like there's a lot of them. That's, that's probably not a good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm trying to separate out my observations from mistakes I've made. Um, I, I think by the one biggest one is that this, that more is better. And I think a lot of coaches believe when it comes to practice, that it's just about reps. You just got to put in the time. Um, where the data tell us that you've certainly got to practice. You've got to get those reps in. But I, I, I think the data tell a pretty clear picture in that it's always about the quality of the practice versus the quantity of the practice. 
And I think kind of tied to that is, is coaches, you know, think, well, we just got to get in the reps and it doesn't really matter how you do it. So that means that you're not thinking about focus of attention at all. You're, you're not being mindful of the type of feedback you're giving. You're not dealing about thinking about contextual interference issues. You're not thinking about autonomy and these other, these other things that we know all feed into quality practice. And so I think that one of the big traps that coaches fall into is just all practice is created equal. It just takes time. You know, one of the, one of the big follies out there is like the 10,000 hour rule. And it's not really a thing, you know, unfortunately, you know, there, there's a book that was written, I'm not going to name names, but that proposed this idea. But when you look at the literature, like it's, you know, Erickson kind of suggested, you know, this 10,000 hours was an average from a violin based study that was done in Germany. Um, and, and so now it's kind of taken on this own, its own life form. So I think coaches really grabbed onto that. Like you just got to get in 10,000 hours, you know, or 10,000 reps or you know, whatever, 10 years, that's the number. And it's not, you know, it, it's all about the quality and good deliberate practice is what gets you there. So if I had to pick one, that's probably where I would start as one of the biggest mistakes. Good pick. Yeah, it sounds like there's a long list, but but thanks for sharing one. And thanks so much for spending the time with us. It's it's so valuable for us to learn from someone who's done the research. And I think it's also rare to have someone who's able to communicate it in a, a very understandable and practical way. So I thought you did a really good job of um, yeah, just making it clear on our end. So thanks well, thank for you. I appreciate it. That's that's good feedback. Yeah. Uh, you're not, so, so I hope that you're not just telling me that to make me feel good. That was an enhanced expectation. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no. Bummer. That was honest. That was very <laughs> yeah. honest. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And again, thanks for the invitation. We'll catch you guys later. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye catch. <laughs>